Today in Security from Wired. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Spoken Edition of Wired. Palo Alto Networks has the broadest, most comprehensive cybersecurity for private cloud, public cloud, and SaaS environments because secure clouds are happy clouds. Protect yours today at go.paloaltonetworks.com slash secure clouds. The Curse of the Bahia Emerald. Meet the schemers, investors, and dreamers who were bewitched by a giant green rock. By Elizabeth Well. Right now, in a vault controlled by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, there sits a 752-pound emerald with no rightful owner. This gem is the size of a mini-fridge. It weighs as much as two sumo wrestlers. Estimates of its worth range from 100 bucks to $925 million. Eight years ago, the emerald was logged into evidence by Detectives Scott Miller and Mark Gaiman of the Sheriff's Major Crimes Bureau. The two men are longtime veterans, 30 years for Miller, 28 for Gaiman. They dress as the Hollywood versions of themselves in wraparound sunglasses, badges dangling off long chains. Among Gaiman's career highlights is the time he busted Joe Pesci's ex-wife for the hit she put out on her new lover. One thing they both hate is the Emerald case. It's a whack-a-mole of schemers. Detangling all the rackets and lies is, Miller says, a puzzle from hell. Emeralds invite stories, many of them dubious. At various points in history, people have believed that emeralds were capable of protecting humans against cholera, infidelity, and evil spirits, and that an emerald placed under the tongue could transform a person into a truth-teller. This 752-pound emerald doesn't quite fit under the tongue, and it appears to have had zero positive effects. Miller and Gaiman got sucked into its orbit on October 8, 2008, when their sergeant forwarded a call. A man with a squeaky voice named Larry Beagler had phoned the cops in a little suburban California town called Temple City, just southeast of Pasadena. He told the officer on duty that his 840-pound emerald, a lot of people say the emerald weighs 840 pounds, but it doesn't, had been stolen and that he'd been abducted and released by the Brazilian mafia. So the detectives climbed into what Miller calls his mobile office, a Chevy Blazer, drove 15 miles out to Temple City and spent the day in the local police station parsing the emerald dossier. 
The case was fun, Miller told me, at the beginning. A thing you should know is that emeralds are complicated. For the green crystals to form, beryllium must be heated to over 750 degrees Fahrenheit under 7.5 to 21.75 tons of pressure per square inch in the presence of chromium or vanadium. Given that beryllium exists only in tiny quantities near the Earth's crust, this seldom happens, and even when it does, the resulting crystals, or beryls as they're known, are not uniform. Almost all emeralds include cracks and inclusions, a.k.a. impurities. On the Mohs scale of hardness, emeralds score 7.5 to 8 out of 10. If you cut along a crack or inclusion, they shatter. Diamonds, by contrast, are simple, pure carbon. The chemical formula for a diamond is C. Diamonds score a 10 on the Mohs scale. The trade is controlled by a few large players. There's also a weekly international price sheet, the Rappaport Diamond Price List, that sets value based on the four Cs, carat, clarity, cut, and color. Diamond price is further stabilized by cartels that determine the quality of gemstones released to market. Meanwhile, the emerald trade is controlled by hundreds of tiny players. The price is, to put it generously, flexible. An emerald costs what someone will pay, period. The idea that diamonds are more romantic than emeralds is preposterous. It's a marketing ploy. Diamonds are a product like gold or crude oil, rational, conservative. Emeralds are Turkish rugs. When you buy one, you believe that you found a secret treasure and finagled a good deal. Then, weeks, months, years later, the truth comes out. You've been had. Time to grip up and face your wounded ego and foist the emerald upon the next guy. The market is especially shifty for so-called specimen emeralds, those that are big and weird, destined for curio cases and natural history museums. The emerald in the sheriff's department vault is called the Bahia Emerald, and it is the consummate specimen, huge, strange, and composed of such low-quality crystals that were those crystals broken down into smaller rocks, gemologists would call them fish tank emeralds. The Bahia emerald, it must also be said, is not pretty. It's a conglomerate, a geologic chimera, a bunch of large emerald crystals lodged at odd angles in a matrix of black schist. Imagine a petrified jello mold made by Wilma Flintstone for a dinosaur. Over the past ten years, four lawsuits have been filed over the Bahia emerald. Fourteen individuals or entities, plus the nation of Brazil, have claimed the rock is theirs. A house burned down. Three people filed for bankruptcy. One man alleges having been kidnapped and held hostage. Many of the men involved say that the emerald is hell-spawn, but they also can't let it go. As Brian Brazil, an anthropologist at California State University, Chico, wrote in a paper entitled The Fetish and the Stone, A Moral Economy of Charlatans and Thieves, emeralds can take over the lives of well-meaning devotees and lead them down the road to perdition. I, too, took a bad spin in the emerald's orbit, pouring endless time into reporting this story, only for a while at least to become more confused rather than less. I read thousands of pages of court documents, including legal depositions that read like episodes of drunk history. Larry Beagler hung up on me. 
The cops canceled the night before I was supposed to fly to go see them in L.A. Then, one day last summer, my phone rang. Hello, this is Jerry Ferrara, a voice bellowed. Jerry Ferrara was one of the many people who claimed the emerald ruined his life. He had declined to talk to me once before, but now he said he wanted to set the record straight. So, he sent me a copy of his unpublished memoir, spent a few hours answering my initial questions, and invited me to visit him in Florida. Jerry Ferrara is 50 years old, big, hairy, half-Sicilian, and huggable. He's been gripped by the Bahia Emerald for nine of the 16 years it's been above ground. The day I arrived in Tampa, he asked me to meet him at a Dunkin' Donuts near Bottoms Down Weight Loss and signs advertising $1 Med Days and Find Your Treasures at Peaches and Pearls Boutique. He wore dad jeans, white sneakers, and a gray golf shirt. He sat down looking nervous, a little enraged, but also clean-shaven and earnest, like he was going to a job interview. The Brazilians are making my life difficult, he said, referring to his ongoing emerald struggles. But do I regret it? I don't regret it. He folded his hands on the table between us. They looked strong. I lost my identity. I looked in the mirror and I didn't recognize the guy staring back at me anymore. Ferrara brought along a skinny woman named Crystal. In the movie version of all this, she'd be played by Uma Thurman, whom he introduced as a profiler, meaning that she judges character. I call her a bullshit caller, he said. They told me there are 14 different personalities. When I asked Crystal about Jerry's type, he answered before she could. She's going to say I'm an asshole. A few minutes later, Ferrara excused himself to get coffee. I asked Crystal, who had a tasteful purple streak in her hair and wore an emerald necklace, what she really did think about Ferrara's character. She glanced at the older woman doing a crossword puzzle next to us as she searched for words. I'm trying to do this in a way that doesn't make him look bad, she said. Sometimes he's had to do bad things to protect himself and the people he cares for. Ferrara first heard about the Bahia Emerald in a low moment. It was November 2007. He was sleeping in his car, scamming free continental breakfasts at hotels for his two daughters, who were sleeping on their aunt's floor. For the prior seven years, he'd been supporting his family through his business, Honest Father Buys Houses, which purchased and resold homes and commercial properties. But then the bottom fell out of the real estate market. Ferrara lost everything, and he started working to right the ship of his life, he says, by selling foreclosed real estate portfolios for Lehman Brothers. When those deals fell through, too, Ferrara, frantic, called every broker and investor he could dial. Eventually, he says, he wound up on the phone with a man named Larry Beagler. Remember him of the phone call to the Temple City Cops? Beagler wasn't really interested in foreclosed property, but he needed someone to help sell a giant emerald. The rock had already been through a lot. The Bahia Emerald was unearthed in early 2001 from the Carnaiba mine of the Brazilian state of Bahia. Then, according to some apocryphal tellings of the Emerald's history, the mule team dragging it through the rainforest was attacked by panthers or some other animal, and the miners themselves had to carry the 752-pound Emerald the rest of the way to civilization. 
From town, it was trucked south to Sao Paulo and placed under a tarp in a carport at one of the mine owner's homes. Those miners, it turned out, had a friend and business associate in San Jose, California. His name was Ken Canetto. A word about Canetto. Like Ferrara, he's half Sicilian and has spent his life looking for deals. He once held the titles to some silica mines in Nevada, but never struck it rich. In fact, for the past 11 years, he's lived in a trailer with his mother, Gertrude, who is now 99. Strewn about are half a dozen pairs of eyeglasses, ten dog leashes, six lazy boy chairs, more pill boxes than I can count, a giant box of Wheaties with Steph Curry on the front, four bicycles, ten fleece blankets, three television sets, two on. When I visited, he offered me coffee cake, oranges, and bottled water, and told me to come back whenever I wanted, a kindness unparalleled by many people I call friends. His mind drifts when he talks. The plots he spins can be hard to follow. If he ever comes into real money, he told me, he's going to buy a big boat, a trihull that will do 50 knots. I won't be hors d'oeuvres for a shark, he says. He's then going to sail that boat up the Adriatic coast and move into the castle he once saw in Dubrovnik. When his tough guy veneer falls, Canetto is very poignant. He has an adult daughter, Kendall, whom he named after himself. He hasn't seen her since she was three. I wasn't ready to get married, he told me of his early life failings. I just stayed away. He thinks the Bahia Emerald is garbage. That thing is a stinking sack of Siberian seal shit. Every time I visited Canetto, I left feeling sad. Back in 2000, during the first internet boom, Canetto knew an affable guy named Tony Thomas who'd sunk a lot of money into a startup that now needed a whole lot more money if Thomas ever wanted to get his initial investment back. According to Thomas's account in court documents, Canetto offered a convoluted plan to help. Thomas and Canetto would fly to Brazil. With these miners, Canetto knew, they'd secure $25 million worth of emeralds, meaning emeralds they could sell for $25 million, though Canetto and Thomas would pay much less. They'd use the emeralds as collateral on a loan, the money from which they'd invest with a so-called high-yield fund that guaranteed huge returns through the International Chamber of Commerce. Thus, Thomas's startup would have the money it needed to stay afloat, and Thomas would become a very wealthy man. In September of 2001, Thomas and Canetto flew to Brazil. In Sao Paulo, Canetto's minor friends arranged for them to look at $25 million worth of cut and polished emeralds. That meeting was a disaster. The lapidary shop was dilapidated, and the men who were supposed to finance the transaction failed to show. The miners then tried to make up for it by taking Thomas and Canetto to one of their homes to see a real treasure. You guessed it, the 752-pound emerald in the carport. According to Canetto, a white cat was peeing on the huge stone when they arrived, but still Thomas fell in love. He looked like he'd found the treasure of Alibaba, one of the miners later recalled in court. Thomas, of course, wanted the stone. The miners, records say, set the price at $60,000. Nearly everybody involved has a different version of what happened next. Thomas said he flew home and wired the money to Sao Paulo. Then he set out to determine the emerald's true value. 
He reached out to former business associates and received amazing news. The most comparable stone was at the British Museum, a slightly smaller emerald worth $792 million. According to testimony, Thomas passed this information to an appraiser he met in Brazil. On November 5, 2001, the appraiser, supposedly having seen the Bahia, wrote, Such a rare specimen has never been seen, not even at an international auction house such as Sotheby's. The stone in this report, I estimate, is worth $925 million. A shocking amount of bullshit happens with big rare stones. The gem of Tanzania, a 10,000-carat ruby, was once valued at 11 million British pounds, but that appraisal turned out to be a forgery. The Life and Pride of America, a 1905-carat sapphire purchased for $10, for a while was valued at $2.28 million. Then a curator at the National Gem and Mineral Collection at the Smithsonian Institution examined the rock, declared the color awful, it's just a kind of muddy gray, and now that sapphire is a paperweight. Recently, in January 2016, newspapers reported the discovery of the world's largest blue star sapphire, the Star of Adam in Sri Lanka. Its anonymous owner told the BBC that the stone is worth $175 million. We shall see. During the time the Bahia Emerald was bouncing around, out of the mine but not yet in the sheriff's safe, an emerald billed as the world's largest was floating about too. This one was named Theodora. It weighed about 25 pounds and was said to be worth $1.15 million. A Canadian gem merchant named Regan Rainey put it up for auction in January 2012. Then he was arrested on, possibly unrelated, fraud charges. Teodera, sadly, included a bunch of white beryl dyed forest green. As for the Bahia Emerald, as Thomas told the court, in November 2001, Canetto told him he'd ship the stone home to Thomas in the U.S. He waited and waited, but the emerald never arrived. So, a few months later, he asked Canetto to return to Brazil and investigate what happened, only to learn the very worst. The emerald had been stolen en route to California. Sorry, inside job among the exporters, Canetto said. What can you do? Canetto has a different story. He claims that Thomas never purchased the stone and that he, Canetto, never promised to mail it home for Thomas. Whatever the case, for the next four years, Canetto and his minor friends leveraged the emerald's appraised value, hatching plans to take out loans against its insurance policy. They did rope in one sucker, but still the miners bickered constantly. So, in 2005, Canetto shipped the emerald, for real this time, to San Jose, California. On the packing slip, he wrote Roca Rochedo, Rock, and listed the value at $100. At the Dunkin' Donuts in Tampa, Ferrara invited me to go with him on what he described as that day's job. As far as I know, he isn't a licensed P.I., but the job was a stakeout. First, we needed to secure what Ferrara called a low-profile vehicle. So, from the Dunkin' Donuts, we stopped by a U-Haul store, where Ferrara rented a white pickup with an extended cab and excellent air conditioning. 
In it, Ferrara, Crystal, and I then drove to see the client who commissioned the stakeout, a 53-year-old woman who lived in one of Tampa's endless and endlessly depressing gated communities, each with their own empty roads and swampy lagoons. It's almost unbelievable. She lost millions to her husband, Ferrara told me as we pulled up to the woman's house. She's still got some Kincaid paintings inside. Ferrara's job on the case, he said, was to locate and uncover money and assets and maybe scare the husband straight. I do it for the adrenaline, he said. There are a lot of sides to me. In a lot of ways, I have a very calm Disneyland mentality. Then there's a side of me that's very mafia, wicked, mean, cold. From there, we headed to the stakeout proper, which consisted of sitting in the U-Haul outside a parking structure near Port Tampa Bay. That's part of stakeouts, Ferrara said, several minutes into our boredom. Sometimes you've got to wait it out. Finally, he left the relative nirvana of the air-conditioned truck to try to figure out if the woman's husband had purchased an expensive car. He walked into the garage and texted Crystal, I'm in. The garage was open to the public. In the cab, Crystal opened her laptop and showed me Ferrara's website for a company called Global Quest. It featured pictures of pre-Columbian masks and ancient gold jewelry. Most of the artifacts come from high individuals. These people don't want to be known, Crystal said. Ferrara discovered these items, or maybe he was just brokering these items. It was entirely clear. He returned the U-Haul with pictures of cars, and we left. That night, over dinner, he told me that for a while he had owned a guitar owned by Elvis. He also once had the opportunity to sell a Leonardo da Vinci painting, but no art historians would authenticate the work because it was on canvas and da Vinci didn't paint on canvas. Ferrara found this position pinched and ridiculous, arguing, There were sales then, right? It was all so disorienting, the stakeout, the da Vinci painting, the Bahia Emerald most of all. Because unlike the pre-Columbian masks and the painting, I knew the 752-pound gemstone really did exist. How it got to a Los Angeles Sheriff's Department vault is complicated, but as best as I could piece together from court documents and also the obsessive research of a fellow journalist, what happened was this. After Canetto imported the stone to San Jose, he made a deal with Larry Beagler, the man with the squeaky voice. Beagler presented himself as polished and rich. Like Thomas, he fell instantly in love with the emerald, certain that he could sell it to a wealthy sucker. So Beagler made a deal with Canetto. Canetto would sign over to Beagler the rights to sell the emerald. If Beagler sold the stone, they would split the proceeds 50-50. This was one of the great many moments that tripped me up while reporting this story. Who says to a random business associate, hey, you want 50% of my $925 million emerald? But Brazil, the emerald expert, set me straight. There just aren't that many buyers for a giant gemstone. 50% of $925 million is $462.5 million, whereas 100% of zero is nothing. Thus, after Beagler took possession of the emerald, he made a similar move. He told a gem merchant in New York that he, the gem merchant, could have 10% of the sale price if he could sell the rock for more than $25 million. That merchant posted the emerald on eBay. Yes, eBay. 
The minimum bid was $19 million, and the buy-now price was $75 million. The listing drew one offer for $19 million, but Beagler refused to let the gem dealer sell. He claimed to have a $75 million deal in the works. Among the most amazing qualities of the Bahia Emerald is that its charm seemed to work every time. One person falls out of its thrall, and the next floats right in. In 2007, the person who floated in was my Florida host, Jerry Ferrara. As he tells it, Beagler approached Ferrara and told him that he, Ferrara, seemed like just the guy to sell the stone. At the time, Ferrara was desperate and quasi-homeless, and this was exactly what he wanted to hear. It was just incredible, Ferrara says. Beagler showed up with a manila envelope and signed ownership of the world's largest emerald over to me. He said he was looking for somebody like me. Soon, Ferrara was tangled up in yet another Beagler operation, trying to sell diamonds to a Mormon guy from Idaho named Kit Morrison. Ferrara describes Morrison as aloof, very secretive. Likeable? No. He wore handmade Italian suits, handmade Italian leather shoes. Morrison sent Ferrara $1.3 million, supposedly for diamonds, which he'd receive in the future. In return, Ferrara says, he put the Bahia Emerald up as collateral. Then that deal fell through. Ferrara did not have any diamonds, so the Emerald went to Morrison. This should have made them enemies, but now they had a common interest, turning the giant rock into money. Thus, they became partners, if not friends. It's like we had a wagon full of gold, Ferrara explained. We're both sleeping by the campfire, one eye open, one hand on your gun under the pillow. At this point, the Emerald was in a storage unit, the Commonwealth International Depository in South El Monte, California. Ferrara and Beagler were supposedly the only ones with access to it, although in court, Ferrara and Morrison said Morrison also had access. Ferrara told me that only people who could prove they had the means to buy the emerald could go view it. Shakes came to look. Canetto insists that even Bernie Madoff flew out in his little putt-putt and planned to buy the emerald for $91 million in diamonds, $21 million in cash, and three watches worth $15 million. But, sadly, Madoff was arrested two days before that alleged deal could close. In June of 2008, Beagler disappeared. He had staged his own supposed kidnapping by a Brazilian warlord, sending word to Ferrara that he needed a ransom paid for his release. This sent Ferrara's mind spinning back to all the times over the past year Beagler had asked Ferrara to send him money, requests Ferrara obliged because he did not want to blow his chance to make millions in an emerald sale. Eventually, Ferrara pieced together the truth. He learned that Beagler was not nearly as polished and rich as he pretended to be. In fact, he was really the proprietor of a business called B&B Plumbing in Citrus Heights, California. I got taken by a damn plumber. Can you believe that? Ferrara told me. B&B Plumbing even had lousy Yelp reviews. Hired Larry to install a dishwasher. He took my 125 bucks and left. No show. One star. Furious and betrayed, Ferrara says he managed to get the secretary at Commonwealth International to let him and Morrison remove the emerald from the vault without Beagler present. 
They loaded the stone into a Cadillac Escalade SUV and headed east toward Vegas. Beegler, Ferrara says, arrived at Commonwealth International less than 24 hours later to find the emerald gone. The day after I went on the stakeout with Ferrara, we drove the U-Haul pickup to his friend Chris Rotunda's home. Among Ferrara's current ventures is working with Rotunda to launch My Pet Shopping Network, which, if all goes according to plan, will be a media behemoth-like home shopping network, but for pet products. We sat in Rotunda's living room, where his three dogs ran in circles and skidded out on his tile floor, and Rotunda's young daughter kept toddling in, followed by Rotunda's wife. The scene was warm, totally regular, and unslick, and in it Ferrara seemed to relax for the first time since I arrived. Rotunda queued up their pet shopping network sizzle reel. On it, he makes a pitch for a product called Pooch Selfie that includes a tennis ball you clip onto a smartphone so your dog will stare at it and you can take a great selfie of you and your best friend looking into the camera. Great, right? Ferrara said when the reel finished. It wasn't half bad. Then Ferrara came down to earth for a bit. Most of the networks are so busy making dead ends that they don't have time to meet with us. Ferrara's life story is filled with pain. He told me his mother walked out when he was four, and he didn't see her again until he was 15. His younger sister died in childhood. His stepmother made him sleep with only sheets, not blankets, in the New Jersey winter. One day, when he was walking home from an after-school job on a day that was minus four degrees, she drove by but didn't pick him up. In 2004, his sister asked to borrow money. Ferrara told me that he gave her a few thousand dollars, and then she died of an overdose. Among the more fantastical family tales, he's told me, was that he had an uncle who owned a junkyard in Edison, New Jersey, and when developers bought the land and cleaned it up, they found 79 skeletons buried in the soil. Let's just say I like my soda flat and my cereal soggy, Ferrara said. That seems to sum up his outlook on life. I asked if he liked pets, and he said, No, I hate them all. What an asshole. Uh, he later said he was kidding. He doesn't drink because, he said, I'm in the limelight, and alcohol makes him even more of a jerk. I hate sports, too. Ferrara's loan outlets are smoking Marlboro Blacks and watching SpongeBob SquarePants. SpongeBob has a personality that cares about everybody. He sees the positive in everybody. He tries to make people laugh, Ferrara explained. His favorite episode is Band Geeks, in which Squidward is set up to fail yet again. He lies and promises that his non-existent band will play a huge gig at the Bubble Bowl, the Super Bowl in Bikini Bottom. He scrambles to pull together a band, but Ferrara said, Nobody knows he has talent. He's going to humiliate himself. The show starts Squidward sweating, Ferrara said. But then it rocks. Behind the scenes, SpongeBob steps in and saves him, turning Squidward's friends into great musicians. Squidward succeeds beyond his wildest dreams. People in my family think it's creepy, Ferrara said, wrapping up his exegesis. But my life is extremely hard, anxiety-ridden. SpongeBob gives me relief. Don't put a horror flick in front of me. Don't put a mafia movie in front of me. That's my life. 
After Larry Beagler realized the emerald was gone from the Commonwealth International Storage Unit, he called the Temple City Police and told the officer on duty that his emerald had been stolen and that he'd been abducted and released by the Brazilian Mafia. This triggered the arrival of Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department detectives Miller and Gaiman. Soon, Ferrara and Morrison became suspects. The detectives took a few weeks to track them down, but by December 15, 2008, Miller and Gaiman were in Eagle, Idaho, in the Boise foothills, staking out Morrison's house. They set a perimeter and shivered in their rental car for two days. On the third day, they knocked on Morrison's door. His wife answered and said Morrison wasn't home. As the detectives were talking to her, they saw a man walking around the side of the property and, figuring it was Morrison, tackled him. He turned out to be a cable repairman. Morrison's wife got Morrison on the phone and he cut a deal with Miller and Gaiman. He would meet the detectives in Las Vegas, where he and Ferrara had stored the emerald, and they'd turn the stone over to the sheriff's department on the condition that neither Ferrara nor Morrison would be arrested. So, Miller and Gaiman flew home to Burbank and assembled a small army, including a dozen officers with assault rifles, and caravaned overnight out I-15 East. When they arrived at the depository at 7 a.m., the Las Vegas Metro Police Department was already on site with a SWAT team and helicopter cover. Morrison showed up in a sport coat and slacks, and within the hour, Miller and Gaiman were wheeling a piano dolly topped with a gargantuan emerald into the desert sun. Everybody took a lot of selfies. Then the detectives loaded the Bahia Emerald into a police van, drove it back over the San Gabriel Mountains, and logged it into evidence. As promised, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department threw the question of who owned the Bahia Emerald over to the Los Angeles Superior Court. From 2007 to 2015, people began endless legal battles. Canetto sued Morrison. Thomas went after Canetto. The New York gem dealer sued Beagler. Ferrara spent a lot of days in settlement hearings and a lot of nights sleeping in hidden corners of hotel lobbies so he didn't have to pay for rooms. Only once did he lunge across the conference table and threaten to beat the shit out of somebody. During the legal proceedings, Beagler disappeared. Canetto got distracted by a friend's new business that turned manure into electricity. The detectives came to believe that the emerald belonged to Thomas. After all, courts found he was the only litigant who'd ever paid anything for the stone. But Thomas fared poorly at his trial. Several key facts were not on his side. One, he never called FedEx to see what happened to his $925 million package. Two, he claimed his house burned down in 2006 and incinerated his bill of sale. The court found his claim awfully convenient. It also turned out, though this was not revealed at trial, that there was no large emerald at the British Museum in London at all. The entire backstory of the $792 million comp was made up. The court had great difficulty pinning down who owned the emerald or how much it was worth, or really any facts at all, because so many men contradicted one another under oath. This led an observer to the possibility that the stone was really a MacGuffin in the classic Hitchcockian sense, an object that everyone's chasing but that doesn't really matter. Still, in 2011, the judge rejected Thomas's claim of ownership. 
Then the judge got a new job and Thomas asked for a mistrial, which the courts granted. In 2013, a second judge heard all this insanity again. But by that point, Ferrara, Morrison, and another guy had gathered into a sort of consortium under the name FM Holdings. That way, someone, any one of them, could reclaim possession of the emerald, sell it, and divide the proceeds. The L.A. Superior Court awarded the Bahia Emerald to FM Holdings on June 23, 2015. But perhaps the emerald really is cursed. Before the Sheriff's Department received the order to release the emerald to FM Holdings, the District Court of D.C. granted an injunction filed by the Department of Justice on behalf of the country of Brazil. Brazil claimed that the Bahia Emerald had been illegally exported and really belonged to them. I'll be honest, says John Natalenko, the primary lawyer on the case for Brazil. When I first got the letter from Brazil asking for help repatriating the Bahia Emerald, I thought it was a total hoax. I thought it was one of those Nigerian prince things where they're going to want us to send a couple million dollars to some bank account and they're going to take all of our money. But Natalenko's partner asked him to pursue the client. Natalenko wrote back to the Brazilians with a real proposal, though he couldn't resist including the jokey promise that his friend Indiana Jones could help reclaim the emerald if his own efforts failed. He got the gig. So today, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department is still, still holding the emerald, now as evidence for a criminal case they're building. The limbo is uncomfortable for Ferrara. He's a big man with big, tenacious, preposterous dreams stuck in a life that feels too banal, empty, and small. My last day in Florida, we met up at Cracker Barrel. Ferrara likes the tchotchkes there. During a lull in the conversation, Crystal told me she worries what will happen if Ferrara loses the emerald for good. It would devastate him, she whispered. It's his whole life. Ferrara and I talked for hours and hours and hours, from the retiree breakfast rush, past lunch, through every last detail of the saga. At one point, he placed the salt and pepper shakers in the middle of the table. He slid them a few inches apart and set his phone on top, like the flat roof of a house. This is our foundation in life. Your mother, your father, friends, teachers, the people that mean something to you. He meant the shakers to represent the people and the phone to be your life. He slid the shakers out from under the phone. As these people fail you, these go away one by one. The phone, your life, falls. Before I headed to the airport, we returned the truck to U-Haul and revisited Dunkin' Donuts for some more iced coffees. We sat outside in the horrible, humid air so Ferrara could smoke his Marlboros. He mentioned that along with SpongeBob, he connected with Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, or at least the title. Like I wrote one time, we entered a world that was inhabited by dark shadows. The nights would never end. The mornings would never come, he said. He didn't quite get the quote from his own prose correct, but he made his point. Life is tough. People betray you and die. We all need escapes. I drove to the airport. I boarded my flight. Even before my plane touched down, Ferrara had left me a voicemail. Call me, he bellowed, optimistic as ever. You will never guess what transpired today. As you left, the winds of change blew in. I called him back the next morning. 
He told me a story about the emerald, which I understood less the longer he talked. He also mentioned that he'd been approached about hosting a TV show, a reality treasure hunter series. He would be the star. It was nice to hear his voice. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.